in a series, and we're looking at the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 is where we're going to be this morning. If you're new here, we um, try to preach through generally books of the Bible one at a time. Um, one at a time, obviously. We want to preach through them all at the same time. And uh, we're in this little letter from the head of the disciples, Peter. And he's writing back to a small group of churches that are sort of scattered across what's known as modern-day Turkey now. And he's writing from Rome, and he's basically, it's a letter of instruction of how to live the Christian life. And so we're getting to this part where he's really focusing his attention on us. And we're going to start with, actually, we're going to start with verse 13 of chapter 1 and go to the end of the chapter. Let's stand together as we read God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also must be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect on God's word.
We'll dismiss the kindergarten and first graders through the back doors. And you have your Bibles open there to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we walk through this passage or some of it today. If you were here last week, just as by way of review, this um, word in verse 13, it's an important word, therefore, it, it serves as like a hinge that's opening a door. We're moving from one idea for Peter into another idea, but it's, it's, a, it's a progression. It's helpful to know to be in the first room before you walk into the second room. In the, the first room, he's talking about the doctrine of God, and he opens this door in chapter or verse 13 to the duty of the disciples. He, he's been in the God's calling. Now he's moving to God's conduct. He's been in what God has done. Now he's moving to what you and I must do. And this, I think, is the most challenging part of the letter. As I mentioned last week, there are several things that Peter is going to call us to do. Imagine him saying to you this morning, here's what you need to work on. Purify your soul and love one, other, one, one another. Put away all hypocrisy Envy and slander. Abstain from lusts. Be subject to every human institution. Be willing to suffer for doing good. Show hospitality and don't grumble about it. Humble yourself and don't be anxious. You see, this this door opens up with the word therefore and presents really the most challenging part of the letter. And the picture that I'm working with, especially in this section that lasts from verse 14 or verse 13 to to chapter 2, verse 3, that a lot of people resonated with, and that's probably because you watch too much television, was this picture that I got from, I don't even know what channel it's on, Discovery Channel, Uh, Hoarders. Remember this? So if you weren't here last week, if you haven't watched this show, please do not rush home to watch it. But the idea is they go into this person's home that sort of looks normal from the outside. But as soon as you open the door, you know, you can't even get the door open because they're a hoarder. They have all these things, this years and years of accumulated junk, and they're holding on to it. They can't let it go because all this stuff that's really, when you look at their house, it looks like a bunch of trash. To them, it's a treasure. And so in the show, somebody, it's usually a relative, sometimes a neighbor says, hey, if something doesn't change in this person's life, if we don't clean out some of this stuff, then they're not really even going to be able to exist much longer. And so when you're watching the show as a non-hoarder, even if you're a pack rat, you're probably not like these people. You're like, they're crazy. They're holding on to all these things that they think are treasures that are really trash. And that's you and I. We're hoarders. We have, we have rooms in our minds. We have rooms in our hearts. We have rooms in our lives that are just full of all kinds of trash. And we hold on to it like it's a treasure. And if somebody comes in like the Apostle Peter with a shovel and says, Hey, Paul, it's time to shovel this out. Oh, no, no, i got to have that. I might use that someday. I might need that. That's been so helpful to me. And, of course, we're wrong about that. We're hoarders of things like lies and lusts, half-truths and trivia, idols and ignorance, greed and gluttony, pride and prejudice, slothfulness and slander, rage and revenge, ignorance, distractedness, forgetfulness, faulty perspective, inconsistencies, dogmatism, vain imagination, miscommunication, 
anger, bitterness, jealousies, fear, anxiety. That's one room on the right as you go walk in. There, but there's room after room in your mind full of trash. And Peter's saying, hey, now that we understand who God is and who God is and what he's done, it's time to open up these rooms and it's, it's time to back up the dump truck and begin to shovel this debris that you think has been so valuable. It's time to, to shovel it out. And so Peter kindly takes us by the hand and he begins to shovel out these things that are trash and not treasure. And I think you could say in this section from verse 13 to verse 3 in chapter 2 that in some sense we're in the, the pursuit of holiness. And so that's my title not only today but for the next two weeks is Peter focuses and you see it in this particular passage. Be holy because I the Lord your God am holy. So we're Peter's saying I want you to understand who God is and in, when you understand that I want you to have a pursuit of holiness. And so as I began to prepare the sermon, I just thought, well, what are the different parts of this sermon in these, these ten or so verses? And I listed maybe a dozen things that I could talk about. And I thought, well, maybe I could just give them each a paragraph. And then I realized, you know, I can't do that. A preacher can never give one point a paragraph. And so I've only gotten to two of them today. So I'm hoping that we're going to get to all of them by the end of week three. But these two are so critical to understanding our understanding as we pursue holiness first. And primarily, we have to understand that God is holy. As we pursue holiness, the first thing you have to be rock solid on is that God is holy. And secondly, the context for our pursuit of holiness is relational. So those are the two points we're going to get to today. First, that God is holy. And secondly, the context in which we're pursuing holiness, it's a relational context. First, God is holy. It says in verse 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. Uh, Peter is quoting one of many places that that same thing is written in the book of Leviticus. God says to his people through Moses, Moses, tell tell the people that I am holy and because I am holy, they should be holy. And this word holy, when it's referring to God, means separate or other. It's, it's one of the major biblical themes. It's trying to help us as small human beings understand that God is holy, meaning he's completely separate from us in a way that we can't touch we can't be like God. He has certain attributes that don't get communicated to us. And so Peter's trying to say, let's make sure we understand that God is holy. It says it several different places in the Old Testament. Isaiah 6.3 that you're all familiar with. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So when, when Isaiah sees this vision of God coming down, the angels are surrounding God and they're looking and saying, he's holy, he's completely different. And you remember when Isaiah saw God, what did he say? Oh, I'm a man. Of unclean lips. I, he, he, he's very aware of his smallness. Suddenly he's in, in the worship service and he meets God and he says, I'm small because you're so holy. You're so separate. You're so other than I am. First Samuel 2, 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. And with some frequency, when the people of God begin to get prideful, God will speak to them like he does in Psalm 50 and says, 
you thought I was just like you. No, I'm holy. See, what happens is when you get when you lose sight of the holiness of God, you raise yourself up and God becomes smaller and somehow those things become alike. And the first thing Peter's saying was got to make sure there's a good separation between who you are and who God is. God is holy. Now, listen to the words of Isaiah, which Peter borrows at part of this of his chapter. All men are like grass. Their glory is like flowers of the field. The Lord blows on them and they fall away. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or the breadth of the heavens are marked off by his hand? Who has held the dust of the earth in a a basket or weighed the mountains on the scale? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you make he sits a throne, enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its peoples are like grasshoppers. He reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root than he blows on them, and they wither, and they just blow away like chaff. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created these things? Who brings out the starry hosts one by one? Who calls them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, no one, not one of them is missing. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Answer, nobody. Nobody's comparable to God. Nobody's equal to God. We can't put him and us in the same category. So as we begin to pursue holiness, we have to understand that first, God is holy. You might remember when uh, the, the disciples, they're so amazed at the power of Jesus in his prayer. And so they explicitly ask Jesus, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? There's something about the way you pray that we don't pray. And so it's one of the rare moments where they come to Jesus and say, this is what we need to know. Would you teach us to pray? And he does, and we know that as the Lord's Prayer. And so my question is, in this Lord's Prayer, what is the first petition in the prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So, hallowed be your name. Is that connected to just recognizing God or is that a petition? And I would say it's the first petition. Because if it was just recognizing God as holy in your prayer... Then Jesus would say, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed is your name. That's a fact. Let's just state it as a fact. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, hallowed be your name. In other words, when you come to God and you fall on your knees, the first thing you need to ask for is an understanding of God's holiness. Before you ask anything else, the first thing you've got to understand, the first thing I've got to understand is I'm coming before somebody who's completely other than me. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He holds the whole universe in his hand. All the waters of the earth can fit into the palm of his hand. He knows every star. He calls them out one by one. He names them. Who else could compare to him? 
So the first petition, even in the Lord's Prayer, is to recognize men and women of God. When you're praying, you must understand that God is holy. You've got to call for that holiness into your mind and say, yes, I'm serving. I'm praying to somebody who's completely different, somebody who's completely other than me. And so if the holiness of God is your, well, as we think about that, as we think about that first petition, we understand that there's really nobody equal to God. We're not, we're not just praying to someone who's like a bigger version or more powerful version of ourselves. We're not somebody saying, well, here's somebody that on the scale of good attributes, they're just at the top of the scale and I'm halfway down the scale. No, God's not even on the scale. God isn't on the scale of love. He is love. He's not on some kind of human scale. He's completely different. He's completely other than who we are. There is no other name besides the Lord. There is no comparison. He's infinitely wiser, more powerful, infinitely more creative, loving, just, perfect, and patient. He's more than we could possibly imagine. And my question is, when you think about the holiness of God, what difference does that make? How would understanding, or maybe having a better understanding of the holiness of God, impact your conduct? See, that's the question we're trying to get to, is Peter is saying... You must be holy because God is holy. Well, if we wrestle with that and we begin to expand our understanding of God's holiness, how does that really affect or how should that affect our conduct as Christians? And gosh, there's so many ways it has an effect on that conduct. One is this. We would have fewer questions about running the world and we would give greater attention to personal obedience. When you really understand that God is holy, that everything that has been created fits into his hand. When you come to that God, you have fewer questions about him running the world and a lot more focused attention on your personal obedience. What is the age I've forgotten now that when your kid, your kid reaches, they begin to ask the why questions. What is that? Three, four, five. It's in full force when they get to teenagers, I can tell you that. But I'm just saying, when does it begin? When does that, that start? It must be, right, four maybe? And the kid begins to, you're saying, hey, my kid came out saying, why? You know, I don't know. Why do I have to brush my teeth? Why do I have to eat dessert last? That's the best part. Why do I have to wait to swim after I've been to the Golden Corral? Why is that? <laughs> but why do I have to go to bed so early? Why, 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 why? And you try to answer a few, but after a while, if you're like me, I'm not into answering any more questions. Uh, what I'm looking for is obedience. I would like for you to brush your teeth, not ask me why you should brush your teeth. Just do what I say. No more questions. And why do you respond that way as a parent? Why, when your child is asking, why, 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 and you say, hey, just do what I say, why do you say that? Well, outside of just exhaustion. 
You're, you're so much bigger, more knowledgeable than your child. And what you, you love your child. You have your child's best interests. It's good if you brush your teeth. It's good if you go to sleep early. It's good if you... You, you can trust me, son. You don't have to ask any more why questions. I'm running your world just fine. I'm in control. And it's a good thing that I am because I have your best interest in mind. I love you more than you could possibly know. That's how you answer a question like that as a parent. Then you can see the parallel. When you see God as holy, you ask a lot less why questions. Hey, he's got your best interest in mind. He loves you more than you could possibly know. He's good at running the world. He's not looking for counsel. He's really looking for obedience. And so as we see him that way, if we understand God's holiness, if that becomes our starting point, if we are beginning to grasp the wisdom and the love and the power and the perfection of God, then our prayers change and our conduct becomes to change because we begin to focus in on ourselves rather than focus in on God's job performance. And you do realize, don't you, that when you ask a why question, most of your why questions embedded in that question is an unhappiness about how God's operating the world. I don't want to rob you of a, of a why question because I think God's big enough to handle that. I just want you to understand that most of the time when you ask that question of God, God, why are you doing it this way? There's a little piece behind it. Is it not for most of us? God, why are you doing this? Because if it were me and you were asking me and he's not, then, then I'd do it. This, this is really a better way. And see, what you're saying is, see, I, I just, God, if I could get on top of you and I could help you do the things that you have the power to do for me. Well, God's holiness is a massive shift in some of our positioning of ourselves. Because you, you may have spent most, most of your Christian prayer life essentially questioning God about how he's running the world rather than focused in on your obedience. You're going to need to circle verse verse 16 because you're going to come back to that again and again. And the reason you need to circle it and the reason you're going to come back to it again and again is because you're a hoarder. And God's holiness is going to pervade that room in your life. And you're going to have a two-fisted grip on something that's a piece of trash. And you think it's a piece of treasure. And when he begins to pry that loose, whatever you think you must have, and you begin to ask the why questions, when he begins to pry that two-fisted grip off of that thing, then you're going to start asking the why question. You're going to scream out, why? Why do I have this physical or relational pain? Why am I in this financial hardship? Why did I lose my father or mother or spouse or child? Why am I being persecuted for my faith? Why am I not married? Why can't I have children? Why has my dream been shattered? 
Why do I have to drink this cup? This isn't the cup I wanted. And the answer to all those questions is God's holiness. He's in control. He's completely separate than us. He's completely other than us. There's, there's no, it's as if God's saying there's no possible way you as a tiny little human being, as, as a piece of dust on a scale, can absorb the infinite, eternal, wise, and perfect plan of God. See, I stand outside of all time. I will accomplish all my purposes, and I'm not looking for your counsel. I'm primarily, I don't, I don't primary, primarily exist to answer your questions. You can trust me now. Work on your obedience. Second way God's holiness makes a difference in our conduct is when you have God's holiness firmly established, then you resist making personal adjustments to his standards of conduct. When you have God's holiness fixed in mind, then when it comes to the standards of conduct, then you resist saying, hey, I'd like to tweak that standard a little bit. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 13, when, he, when Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he makes sure you understand how big this ask is, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors that are sent by him, you be subject to that human institution. Yeah, well, I'd like to tweak that a little bit. If so-and-so doesn't win the election, then I don't feel like being obedient to that one. Or in chapter 2, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good ones, but also to the unjust. Ah, can I tweak that a little bit? Chapter 3, wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Yeah, I'd like to overhaul that one, not just to tweak. But see, that's what happens if we don't have God's holiness in view. He gets reduced, we get a little bit bigger, and then we come to these commands and we say, yeah, but I think what he meant was, why? Because I'm a little bit bigger. I don't really have God's holiness in view. I don't really think he's got my best interest in mind. And he kind of needs my counsel. So I take these verses in the Bible that Peter says and say, well, you know, that was way back then. And now it's a little bit different. And, and you know, strangely, it looks different to your advantage every time. And so if we really have God's holiness in view... We will understand that our pursuit of him will mean we'll follow more closely after his commands rather than uh, adjusting the commands to work for us. So we have to have God's holiness firmly fixed in our mind. And the second point I want to make in our concluding point here is the context of our personal pursuit of holiness is relational. And this is really critical to understand because so often when you have this pursuit of holiness, it gets reduced to a list. And the list, you've seen it, it's neatly divided into two columns. Top of column on the left is dues. 
column on the right is don'ts. And so you have this life-transforming encounter with Christ, and then somebody comes in and says, great, here's a list. This is what you have to live by now. And what happens, or what can happen, is you've fallen in love with the Savior, but then the rest of your life you live by a list. Now, I'm not saying lists are bad. Peter has lists in here. But see, you don't want to live by a list. You want to live by a Savior. It's a relational thing. It's, it's, it's not a list thing. And Peter wants us to make sure we, we understand that, that he uses these relational terms as obedient children, verse 14. If you call on him as a father. See, see the goal here is for the child to naturally duplicate the movements of the father. It's, it's not a list to say, oh, I've got to do these things, and if I don't, gosh, I'm in trouble. It's no, these are the things that God is doing. So you be like that. God is merciful, so just, just be merciful. God is loving, so be loving. Just, just naturally follow Him through your life and just do the things He's naturally doing. And because you might not know them, I, I'm putting them on a list, but you're not loving and following a list. You're loving and following a living God. I put this to the test with my kids one time. They didn't even know it. They were maybe five and three. Zachary's five, Morgan's three. And we lived in a little house and walked out to the back. And whenever dad's going outside, kids are going outside. I don't think they were really following me. I think Nancy was saying, you just go outside, please. But I walk outside. Zachary's five. He's behind me, behind Zachary, Morgan, three. And so I just put this to a little test. See what, see what they do. So I walk out in the yard. I don't say anything. We have a tire swing. And I just kick the tire swing. Walk on by. Zachary. Morgan, three. Went over to the swing set. Pushed the swing. Walked on by. Zachary. Pushed the swing. Morgan, push the swing. Went over to the tree. Picked a leaf off. Zachary, pick a leaf off. Morgan, pick a leaf off. Just whatever I did. They know their father loves them. They can can trust what he's doing. It's the right thing to do. And he's establishing a pattern out of his love and his concern for me that he's saying, this is the way to walk. Not because it's a list. Because it's my father and I would want to follow my father. I would want to know what his pattern is. I'd want to know what his ways are. And and I'm following out of it because of this giant love for my holy father. And that's what motivates me to move forward. Not just a list. And if we don't see it as relational, if we don't understand the context of our obedience to God as a relational context, then you fall in love with Jesus. You say, yes, he died for me. And then somebody puts a list in your hand and you just have your head down the whole time the rest of your life. Just trying to make sure you got the do's down and you got the don'ts out. And you may have been in churches like this. You may have found the person who gave you the list and said, hey, really, I'm just checking the list. And I've forgotten about the Savior. And so there's this relational, important relational context. Let me give you a biblical illustration of the same point. Uh, David has become king. This is in Samuel. And, you know, the, the, the Jewish people are always fighting, fighting against the Philistines. 
And they don't, the Philistines don't want David to get powerful as this king. He's already exhibited a lot of power. And so they decide to, to drive through the country of Israel, which is relatively narrow, and try to capture some spots that are critical to the, the troop movement and the, the agricultural movement and the commerce movement. And so the Philistines drive into the, to the Jewish territory and they capture the town of Bethlehem, which is the city of David. They captured David's hometown. And David is just not too far away, hiding in a cave, trying to figure out what's the plan. And he's got some men that the Bible calls David's mighty men of God. You remember that? And three of them specifically are with David. They're hiding out in this cave. And we don't know exactly how this conversation happened or even it was even if it was a conversation. It feels more like just something David was thinking. David was sort of sighing about. And he's in this cave and at some point he just says, Oh, I wish I could have a drink from the well in my home city of Bethlehem. I wish I could just taste that water. That you have that sense. I just wish I could go back to that hometown and, and just taste one more time. Well, that's just over that that sigh, that longing, that wish is just overheard by these three mighty men. And so they draw swords. They suit up. Unbeknownst to David. Hey, when David falls asleep, we can get some water. They fight their way into the town. And I'm just I've got a sort of a Pirates of the Caribbean kind of, you know, in my head. Two guys fighting, one guy with the bucket, you know. And they're fighting through this garrison. They've got to get to the middle of the town. That's now the, the, the well is inside the town. So they fought through the city wall. They fought through these, this garrison of soldiers that are Philistines. One guy's got the bucket. Two guys holding them off. Get the bucket down. Get the well. Okay, we're now running. Don't spill too much. Keep fighting. Get out. Run back. How tempting would it be you get out and go, let's drink some of this water. But they get the water all the way back to David. And he cannot believe it. That just, just his sigh, that the king would say, oh, I just wish I could have this. Just that sigh, just that closeness of their ear to his heart would cause them to move. They're so in love with the king. They're so committed to the king. That just if he thinks something, they just long to do it. See, that's relational. It's not a list. Is, is your head, is your heart, is your ear so attuned just to the heart of God that when, when you have a list, don't slander, don't be envious, don't be lustful. It's not, it's not a list. It's, it's God's heartbeat saying, oh, this, this is trash. Don't think it's a treasure. Let go of that. Let's follow in a different pattern. You know, with some frequency, not every week, but some frequency, somebody will come up to me and ask this question. And I think it's a well-meaning question, but I think it exposes something. And they'll say, you know, how much do I have to give? Ten percent? You know, I know that's an Old Testament thing. Is it a New Testament thing? I mean, I want to, I want to be okay with God, so I want to make sure I, I give the right amount. And I think that just is, what do I have to do? 
What's on the list? Instead of, no, I I really want to do. How much could I possibly do? Not what's the minimum threshold that the Father is asking for, but what's the heartbeat of the Father? Then when I get into the heartbeat, then it won't, the, the percentage won't matter. But if, it, if it's, I've got to make sure I get on the list, and you, you've gotten your head down and you're following the wrong thing, you might even be doing good things. But the things themselves you think are going to save you, those things are not going to save you. How much good you do is not going to save you. How much good God did is going to save you. Such a critical understanding. I'm not taking away the list. I'm trying to put the love of God over the list. And the only way that fits well is if you have the holiness of God firmly established. He's a good God. Yes, you're going to have questions like why. But when you have that question, just say, God think this question could be answered if I just really are in touch that you are all powerful that you are all wise that I look like dust on a scale to you and you're in control and I can trust you do you have the holiness of God firmly fixed in your mind it's the first prayer it's the first petition and if you do, when you line up your conduct, are you, are you following after a living Savior? Or have you got stuck down your, on a list? Maybe today's the day to lift your head and see the Lord. Let's pray together. God, there's so